welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the sparingly young, aesthetically hip, and penitentially lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Don't you mean King Zach oh Davis? My oh, my God. You know, I could see it on your face that you were not just going to give us a hello. <laughs> no. Uh, happy Mardi Gras. Happy Mardi happy Gras. Mardi Gras. Yes. Listeners by the why, time. why are we calling you King Zach Davis? Because there, we had an office king cake today, and uh, when I cut off my sliver of the piece, I took a big bite and... Uh, thought I was by eating a really burnt piece, but turns out it was a little tiny plastic baby Jesus. Um, and so I think that makes me the king of the office for the day. I don't sure. think that's how it works. No, in reality, means I have to buy cake next year. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, uh, happy Mardi Gras. Happy, happy Mardi, Mardi Gras. And listeners, by the time you're listening to this, it'll already be Lent. Yes. So what are we drinking, Zach? We're not. <laughs> We're yeah, bo- we don't even have coffee. Is this, this is our third? This austere. is our third Lent now, right? <laughs> yeah. So wow. this is uh, this is now a, officially a tradition where uh, we go drive for Lent. So we'll, except for uh, when St. Patrick's Day rolls around, we get a we dispensation. Get a dispensation. Yep. So, but for for now, no cheers. No. All right. Who penance. are we talking? <laughs> Only penance. <laughs> Who are we talking to, Olga? This week, we're talking with Marie Tweyigira. She is a Jesuit refugee services education advocate based in Malawi. And she's got this really interesting story. Um, at the age of two, she left Rwanda with her family after her father was killed in the genocide in Rwanda. Yeah, she is so impressive. So she went through multiple refugee camps and then ended up finishing um, high school at the top of her class, getting a scholarship to go uh, to medical school in China, learned Chinese to do medical school in so fascinating um and so we talked to Mireille about the role that education has played in her life and she tells us her story um and how her faith has kept her strong and what it means to be a symbol of hope now for so many yeah it's a great conversation but first signs of the times the part of our show where we sift through the catholic news of the week so you don't have to uh our first story uh comes from fordham the Jesuit University in New York, uh, which received a letter from uh, President Trump's personal lawyer during the 2016 campaign um, threatening legal action if they released his grades from his time there. Yeah, so these were... uh sort of brought out last week and as part of the uh, testimony that Michael Cohen gave to Congress. Um, But, yeah, he it was from Michael Cohen to Father Joseph McShane, S.J., (laughs) Uh, yeah. Yep. So Trump went to Fordham for two years before uh, uh, transferring to the University of Pennsylvania. But Olga, how does that make you feel? <laughs> Honestly, I like to forget about it until moments like this when I'm reminded that, yes, the president went to my alma mater as and, well. And while he, he is Jesuit educated, he did not finish his degree and he, he may have learned other things had he stuck around. What's our next story, Olga? So Pope Francis announced on Monday that the Vatican is going to open early the archives of Pope Pius XII, who was pope from 1939 to 1958. Yeah, and Pius is significant historically for he was pope during World War II, and he's been strongly criticized by some for not speaking out publicly against the Holocaust, but then defended by others for the hidden work that he did to help a lot of the victims from Nazism. Right, and so normally there's a 70-year waiting period before the archives um, of around the work of popes would be released and open to researchers. But Pope Francis has decided um, to open them next year. And this is 
does not start with France. So see, during John Paul II, there was a big push to sort of uh, set the record straight on what what really went went down at the Vatican. And uh, the Pope said, the church is not afraid of history um, and on the contrary, wishes to love it more. And so for that reason, he is open and entrusting to researchers uh, this documentary patrimony. Um, so opening up the archives to all these different researchers. Right. And, and transparency is rarely a bad thing. And I think now that uh, researchers are going to have full access to these archives, they're going to be able to actually evaluate Pius's legacy more fairly. What's our next story? So Leadership Roundtable, which is a church reform group that was founded in the wake of the sexual abuse crisis in 2002, has released a new report to address sexual abuse crisis in the church and its subsequent cover-up. Yeah, so this report comes out of the Catholic Partnership Summit, which was held last month in Washington, D.C., um, and it brought together over 200 uh, lay people and cardinals and bishops, uh, including Cardinals Supich, O'Malley, and Tobin. Um, and the 40-page report lists uh, 50 recommendations that bishops, lay people, and the USCCB can embrace to address the abuse crisis. So the release of this report comes right after the uh, end of the sexual abuse summit that happened at the Vatican. Uh, and a lot of people are wondering, OK, there weren't any concrete proposals that came out of that. So what's next? And luckily, there are several in this report. Right. And it's really encouraging to see that Leadership Roundtable is offering a lot of examples that the church and lay people can take going forward. So we decided to kind of break into what some of those takeaways are. One big one for me was what can the church learn from the business world in the sense that there, there's a recognition that a lot of our solutions are organizational ones and they're not necessarily theological or even canonical. And so there are these recommendations that are uh, on governance and human resources and financial management and communication. And those are all sort of specific recommendations that are going to work to move us past some of the crisis that we're in right now. Right. And yeah, I was struck by the document kind of addresses bishops in their role as like CEOs of their own diocese, mm -hmm. um, which was a little like I found a little bit off-putting at some points. Like they talk about the need for like 360 evaluations of bishops and like continuing education. And it's just like very like corporate language. And like, I don't know, I, I like to think of bishops as like pastors, mm -hmm. but I also recognize that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but part of part of, um, you know, leading a diocese is is, you know, the buck stops with him. And if he doesn't have have the support from lay experts and accountability from outside, like we wouldn't let that go in like the corporate world or in any other organization. So it makes sense for for us to think about our bishops in this way. Yeah. What did you think, Olga, about some of the specific recommendations that they had? Was there any that stuck out to you? Yeah. One that really stuck out to me was how they offer concrete solutions for how to fix the clericalism that exists. Um, you know, they include things like developing a new code of conduct for bishops, better formation for bishops. And one thing that I really appreciated was encouraging Catholic leaders to look to other denominations and to see how they've dealt with their own sex abuse crises. Um, and I think for me personally, I often think, oh, this is a problem that the church has to deal with and this is unique to us. But this report reminds you that, no, this is happening everywhere. And it, it would be helpful to be in dialogue with these other communities. No, definitely. And especially in, you know, recent weeks, we've seen reports of other denominations sort of experiencing their own sort of reckoning with sexual abuse. So it's not only that, you know, we have a responsibility to learn from other denominations. We have a responsibility to share what we've the knowledge that we've gained from dealing with it since 2002, right? One communications thing that really stuck with me was the 
recommendation to coordinate a national release of names. This is like a list of names of priests who have been credibly accused of sexual abuse. Um, sort of coordinating that nationally so it happens all at once and that pre- prevents this ongoing trauma that happens every time there's a name from a diocese or a religious order sort of one at a time. So getting it all out in the yeah. open once. Getting it out there and making it easy to find like a central website where you can go mm-hmm. and the names are out there. Yeah, I think that would be a great service to the church. Yeah. What's our last story, Ashley? Pope Francis wants you to give up gossiping for Lent, which... <laughs> I honestly, I feel personally attacked by the Pope um, because I am someone who loves to gossip, especially in my family. It's not something to be proud of, but I did feel attacked. No. I, I am always telling people that you gossip a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, so the Pope, he, he takes gossiping very seriously. I think I, you know, tend to think of it as, you know, not like a major sin. Like, you're just... You're just talking about right. people when they're not in the room because that's how you build friendships. You're bringing, in fact, you're sort of including them in a way, right? <laughs> but no, Pope Francis says that, uh, especially when we're when we're talking badly about someone behind their back um, and and noticing the defects in their lives without you know looking at ourselves with the same critical eye, um, that is the result of original sin and something that we should be on guard against. I also realized that you know I feel like this was a problem for me in high school and sort of that culture a lot and then college was a little bit better and but then getting into the workplace again i feel like that just introduces a, a lot of new temptations yeah to do that so i think this is spot Especially on. on slack <laughs> <laughs> yes uh but i thought this was a good point to bring up uh what are we giving up for lent uh, are you giving up gossiping or or anything else also or no, I'm not giving up gossiping. Great. Um, so you, we can I can't still... give up the tea for Lent. Um, but actually, Ashley posted this link from the Grotto Network, which says what to give up according to your Myers-Briggs personality type. And at first I went into it thinking, oh, I'm just going to do this as a joke so that I can share this with my co-host <laughs> on Slack. Um, and according to my personality type, I should give up flaking. Um, and I think I'm actually <laughs> flaking, like, like flaking on your friends or family when you make plans with them. And at first I was like, whatever, Ashley and Zach are going to laugh. But I realized I get really caught up in my own life and think, oh, I'm planning a wedding or I'm writing. So my friends and family will be there um, when I make time for them. So I think I am very guilty of flaking on the people that I love. So I'm going to make a commitment to not be selfish. Giving up flaking. (laughs) Ashley, McKinnis, what are you doing? So the Grotto Network told me I needed to give up perfectionism, but that seemed a little bit too easy. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like you're supposed to do something challenging, not like... (laughs) I can assure you that would be a challenge for you. It would. It really would (laughs) be, Ashley. (laughs) You're already like, I can't do it perfectly, so I won't. (laughs) That's very much the tone she has right Uh, now. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, Us INFJs. It's a hard life. Mm-hmm. Um, but no. So, you know, maybe maybe I'll give that a an old college try. Uh, but I'm going I always give up sweets, so I'll give up sweets. And I'm also taking part um in my parishes, like they have a Lenten series, but we'll meet in small groups um for prayer and spiritual reflection once a week. That's so great. Also yeah. taking something up for Lent. Nice. Yeah. What about you? I am uh we did an SOT a couple weeks ago about a uh, girl who challenged Pope Francis to go vegan for Lent. Uh, she was challenging him a million dollars, or she would give a million dollars to a charity of mm-hmm. his choice if he did it. I am not going to go vegan. Um, I'm also not going to get a million dollars, but I am going to try to go vegetarian for Woo, Lent. Welcome to the club. Thank nice. you. Thank you. This is going to be a struggle, but uh, my fiance is committed to doing it with me. So, And I'm a personal fan of cheating on Sundays. <laughs> 
So oh my gosh. There you go. All right, listeners, we want to hear what you're giving up or taking up for Lent. We'll we'll post the question to our Facebook page and you can weigh in and let us know. Joining us in studio today is Dr. Mireille Toyegira. She is a JRS refugee education advocate based in Malawi. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thank you very much for having me. We're super, super excited that you're joining us and in studio too. We always get excited when our guests are here. Um, So as I mentioned in the intro, you're an education ambassador for JRS based in Malawi. And you came to JRS as a refugee when you were a child. So going back to the beginning, could you tell us a bit about where you grew up and how you arrived at a refugee camp? Yeah. Well, I grew up, for the most part, in Zaleka refugee camp. When we got there, I was about eight years old. But of course, I had left my home country, Rwanda, when I was about two and a half. So I left Rwanda with my family uh, after the conflict. But of course, I had lost my dad during the conflict. So we went to Congo. uh, But I lost my sister along the way as well. And then we stayed for a while. But of course, I lost my mama, my mother there. Mm. She passed away due to illness. But still, I was still young to understand what is death, what is conflict. I was still too yeah. young. And then from there, we moved because there was war now in 1996 in Congo. So I was so about five. With? I was with my grandparents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when war started in Congo, we had to leave now, and we had to wander in the forest there in search of safety. So so through Congo in Angola. And then we reached a refugee camp in Angola with just my grandfather. My ma- grandmom had passed away a few days before uh, because the exhaustion of walking and sometimes walking without, you know, having eaten. So it was quite hard on her and she had passed away. From that camp in Angola, we went to Zambia and another refugee camp. And then uh, from that refugee camp, uh, I had this, she was a friend of my grandfather's in Rwanda. And she found out that we were in, in the camp and then she actually helped us to be able to move from the refugee camp to Lusaka so that I could go to a better school and also have a better life. So we went to Lusaka and she found company sisters to be paying for my school fees and then gave my grandfather a bit of money to start a small business. So in Lusaka we stayed for a bit and then that's when my grandfather heard about Zaleka refugee camp that, you know, there was a good school, it was, a, you know, better conditions because it was hard for him to maintain our life in the in the city so we went to Malawi in 2000 September I was about to turn nine uh, that's when we reached Malawi um, yeah I think that's the <laughs> bit of summary of how I got to Malawi Mary hearing your story it's hard for me to even imagine living through that that amount of tragedy um, and it's easy for me to imagine losing my faith in humanity and in God after losing so many people and seeing so much conflict how how have you kept faith and kept your faith in God, kept your faith in humanity? Yeah. Well, when I was now going through all that, I didn't really think anything of it, you know, because yeah. you're living to see the next day. Yeah. You just, yeah. you know, oh, I'm alive today. I'm alive tomorrow. But then as a teenager, that's when it just began to hit me. Like I would see other kids, for example, in, in boarding school, because we have visitors day where parents come and I would see, you know, other parents are coming, they're hugging their their kids. And I felt sad many times. I would actually go and, and cry. Um, but 
but still now as i grew up older um there was still that bitterness you know like i would question my friends like do you really love me because i had lost so much and so many people and to me is my little brain it registered like they don't love me you know mm. but that was not the case they were dying but in me it was like you know nobody can love me and conditionally you know your parents are the ones who are supposed to love you no matter who you are but now i don't have any parents and like, who can love me for who I am, you know. So I questioned my friends a lot, like, do you really care about me? But now my faith began to, like, I began to really see the how God was loving me through the people that were surrounding me, whether the lady who helped us or Jairus who built the school, the school in the, you know, there were, it was all the love of God through people, you know. And I began to see all that, especially in China. That's where my faith and really seeing that God loves me and God didn't stop being God, yeah. you know, because I, going, I was going through that, but he was with me. But So when I saw that, it really helped me to continue to move on because I knew that, you know, no matter what it's for a reason that i'm alive and yeah. you know can you tell us a little bit what that school was like when you you got there and were getting like your first foundation and proper schooling yeah so when we got to zaleka that was actually my, the first thing that my grandfather did was to enroll me in the jesus refugee service school there that was the only school in the camp and um it was it had great teachers you know and at that time were very few so each class would have maybe 50 students which was good it was very close so you just you know cross the street and you go to school um and we all loved really going to to the school because it felt like a safe place you'd go and learn and play and you know make friends and then go back and we had really like we had the library that i loved so every time i would i would really rush so that i have a little bit of time to go to the library and read some books and we had some volunteers who would come and and actually like read our stories mm-hmm. teach us some songs like like i don't remember there was there was this other volunteer who came and was really teaching us these great songs who just be clapping and it was really fun mm-hmm. it was was fun do you yeah. have fav- do you remember what your favorite books were then Mm, my favorite books, I think, when I was mostly in high in high school, mm-hmm. were Nancy Drew, the series, yeah. the detective <laughs> Nancy Drew. I actually yes. remember reading all the books within a short period of time. <laughs> I would have a book and be cooking and reading. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so in Malawi, I went through the primary school and then secondary school. And then at the end of secondary school, we all sit for the same exam. When the results came out, I was among the top six students in the whole country. And then because of that, I got a scholarship to go study in China uh, through the Chinese ambassador who had been present during an award ceremony for the best girls were three of us, three girls and three boys. There were a group of people who really fought for me to be able to go as a Malawian, because I wouldn't be able to go otherwise, you know. Why not? Um, I didn't have a passport. Mm-hmm. So they, in the end, they gave me Malawian citizenship, then a passport, and then I was able to go to China and pursue my studies there. Who were the people uh, advocating for you? So that ceremony I'm, I was talking about, yeah. the Best Girl Award ceremony, is organized by this radio station called Zodiac Broadcasting Station. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have this big thing, you know, that they they call out the three the best girls and then they have a big ceremony. And um, so when I got the scholarship, they really saw it like we have to fight for this girl, you know, and it, the issue actually got to the parliament, you know, people discussing, should we not, should we give her? But in the end, there was a lot of public uh, people behind me who who said, you know, she's gotten this far, you know, why not give her the chance to continue? Yeah. 
So the radio station really played a very big part in that. So I imagine going to China for medical school meant you had to learn Chinese. Yeah. Which yeah. I've tried to do and failed. <laughs> uh, and I had a lot of good teachers. So how did, how did you learn Chinese? So um, we left um, Malawi and then we went to China to do language. But actually in the beginning, we didn't know that we were to do our studies in Chinese. We just thought we were going to learn just to get by. <laughs> but yeah. that proved to not be the case. So oh it was gosh. we were immersed in that in the language. You'd have classes from eight to five, just Chinese. Um, and of course, it was hard because that was the first time most of us began to fail subjects. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you know, it was quite hard. But you know, you just find ways to make it work. You you help each other. You because in Chinese they have a saying that they say duo xie duo like everything do more like write more speak more like that helps. So immersing in the the community yourself in the community helped a lot. What was your support system when you got there? Yeah, so when we got there uh, at the language school, um, we were lucky because there were other people actually, not just me and the other girl who we went together. We found people from all over the world, mm -hmm. especially Africa and Southern America. So that was that community because there were others who had been there uh, like before. So they're the ones who would help us, you know, get around because otherwise you wouldn't even know where to buy gloves. You know, yeah. how do you even say how much is that? Right. But we had people who were like helping us to navigate through the city. And then because you're learning Chinese so fast, you learn like within a month, you can be able to get around, you know, even not just a month, like within a few weeks. Maybe you're learning. you, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, like it's like from eight to five. And they make sure that in the beginning they teach you things that you can use, you know, like saying how much, good morning. And you're, yeah. And you're practicing it right you're after you learn right it. Right yeah. Up, yeah, yeah. You've also mentioned that the people that you met in China really helped you to see your situation as not so much tragic, but more hopeful. How did yeah. they do that? Well, it was basically the church community, right? Mm -hmm. Because I began to join this church. It's a non-denominational church called Shenyang Christian International Fellowship, where everybody just comes and support each other. So um, that's when I began to go to the church, and they would I would people find people really being so nice to me, and and you know uh, they would help me to understand the Bible and and what God says and all these things, and and through their friendships, really like. People who didn't have a reason to love me, who didn't have a reason to, you know, to help me. And even though I was like a, sometimes harsh, not, not really harsh, but I would question their intentions. They were still there and you know, mm -hmm. helping me understand like we, st we really love you, you know, and really helped me a lot. Yeah. So your story is incredible. Um, is it outside the norm? What What is for most refugee children? Do they have the same kind of opportunities you have or, or are there less opportunities in different camps can yeah. you talk about? Yeah. Well, so many refugee children have less opportunities because um, now the refugee reality is now more than we... How do I put this? Now we have more refugees, especially like, for example, in my refugee camp where we were like less than 10,000 maybe or maybe a little bit more but now we have like 40,000 people yeah. and where for the same they, where are they coming from now from Congo and Burundi so the new refugees coming they're mostly from Congo you still have one primary school and one secondary school and now a huge population of refugees coming and everybody wants to be at the same primary school so now you find that you know 
only a few percentage is able to enroll in the school you know and now for post secondary school it's it's we have very limited opportunities for post secondary school for refugees not just for malawi but everywhere because i was uh, i just visited chad last october and there there's a very big challenge like um the only opportunities there for post secondary it's like learning english or computer and some a few people who get a chance to go through teacher training but that's like only a few people so i would i would say that my case it was made different just because of the chances that i got but not not that others lack the potential they have tremendous potential but now because of the lack of opportunities makes our stories a bit different yeah so what what would their story be like if without the opportunities well what do you think <laughs> i don't know you know yeah what do you think if somebody you know you're maybe able to go through primary school and then secondary school of course even in the attending those primary school and secondary school you find that you have now in a class a hundred students in one class like for primary school so now you can imagine the quality that a kid is getting because yeah. the teacher is not able to track each one's performance so now going through primary school is is it becomes harder for students even to perform very well yeah mm-hmm. because the quality is now and then you finish and you don't have any anything to do afterwards and actually the lack of opportunities for university makes others th- say okay now my family is very like we don't have much food like especially in chad right like my family is struggling and maybe you're the older one so you find that many just you know drop out because okay what's you know what's there for me even if i finish secondary school then there's nothing to look for after yeah there's nothing so why for, continue anyway for someone who who doesn't have an opportunity to go to mm. university are they mm. likely to live at the camp for their entire life does does that happen yeah well like nowadays like the people are spending many like more years actually in displacement because yeah. the conflicts are becoming more you know intense intense yeah. and not really ending anytime soon so people actually just you stay in a refugee setting for for more than 10 years more than 20 years people being born and raised in refugee camps and stuff like that but also like there's more to that because um for for some countries their policies still don't allow refugees to work outside the camp so there's still you know um for most people they just stay there and maybe mm-hmm. do a small business there and there's really need for more like advocacy in that area for mm-hmm. for people to see refugees as a resource that you know um if you allow them to work they can actually help you know the economy and stuff like that yeah do you ever i i imagine you want to share your story to raise awareness and help other um other refugees um right. but do you ever want to just like Be, I guess you're never going to be a normal 20 year old but you could go be a doctor somewhere um mm. so what what do you what's challenging about kind of being held up as this beacon of hope for mm. refugees everywhere yeah well it's not like I was held up you know it's 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 it was a decision of mine because mm. after seeing how transformation it has been for me and really just my faith helping me to reflect more and and you know seeing okay what do i want to do you know what difference do i want to make what impact do i want to make it's not like i was forced into it it's something that i ha- i decided to be able to use my story but at times it feels you know like um 
I feel the responsibility because there are many refugee stories, but not many have been put into in public like this. So I feel the responsibility to be able to use my story, but I I, I can only do so much. So <laughs> sometimes I just say, okay, you you don't have to do everything, you know. Just do whatever you can, and and hopefully, you know, you make a difference in other young refugees. But it's not really a burden. I wouldn't call it a burden. No. Is there another story that real that inspires you that you like to tell someone else's? Mm. Uh, yeah, actually, when we were in the camp in Meheba in Zambia, mm-hmm. there was one of my classmates there under trees, of course. Like <laughs> we used to compete, and actually, her mom was our teacher. Uh, I just learned that like recently because. I don't remember my teachers, but then yeah. she contacted me and she was she told me that we were classmates and her mom was my teacher, our teacher. And now she's she had has done most of her schooling under trees. Like she's she her story is more like mine. Now she's an investment banker somewhere in Europe. <laughs> wow! <which> is, yeah, <laughs> very impressive and really it shows hope um, that you know lives are being transformed and there is hope even though the what the numbers that we see can be overwhelming but mm-hmm. seeing that hope really can encourage people to do a little bit of something like a small step which changes somebody's life uh what could what can listeners who are listening to this podcast what what can they do to help maybe change lives mm-hmm. well there's a lot that can be done right there's yeah. a lot like one thing that they can do is maybe visit a website from Jesuit Refugee Service because they have a list of things that an individual, not not the government, an individual can do. Mm-hmm. Not just giving money, but you can fundraise, you know, uh, because Jesuit Refugee Service, among other organizations, they're doing a lot in the refugee settings, right? In terms of education, in terms of psychosocial support, in terms of livelihoods. So there's a whole list like fundraising there's advocacy like maybe writing a letter to your representative you know so that some policies can change and be able to help people you know refugees so if one can visit that website jesuit refugee service uh, usa website there's a list of things like you know that one can do uh, as an individual as a community as well yeah awesome i think i think jesuit refugee services is like the best thing that the jesuits do so thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you very much. Yeah, and folks who want to check out that website, it's jrsusa.org and look for the section Take Action. And Marae, just thank you again for joining us in studio and for sharing your wonderful story. We've got one final question for you. If you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or not, who would it be and why? Mm. Well, it would have to be Severa. Okay, and who is that? Yes, this is the lady that has been very instrumental in my academic journey, not just academic, but my whole journey, um, who supported my grandfather and I to move from Meheba to Lusaka and then kept following my journey and helping me whenever I needed help, she was there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I think really if she hadn't done what she did, even though she didn't have much at that time, but her choice to help me and my grandfather, you know, change the course of my life forever. So I think that would, should should be her. There are many people, <laughs> but Severa, yeah. Severa. Saint Severa, yeah. amen. All right, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you so much. for having me. Thank you.
All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? So with Lent upon us, uh, there's a lot of things that go on during Lent for Catholics. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving. It can be hard to know where to start. And so the (laughs) ragtag team of editors here at America Magazine has cobbled together the Jesuit Guide to Lent for you. And so if you're looking for uh, some spiritual resources on how to do any of those things that I mentioned before. We've also got some daily audio reflections going out on some of our other podcasts, uh, the Word podcast specifically. And if you were looking for resources and more, we've got it all at www.americamagazine.org slash Lent. Who are you calling Ragtag? <laughs> looking I'm like right the team of <laughs> Ashley. <laughs> team of Ashley has put together. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? I've got a consolation this week. Um, I went to my first dress fitting on Saturday and found my wedding dress. Um, (gasps) It's very exciting. I I can't wait to show you guys pictures. Um, And my sister and my mother were there with me. And once I found the dress that that I'm going to wear on my wedding day, seeing the reactions on my mom and sister's faces just it was so consoling because it's so easy for me to slip into all the superficial parts of planning for my wedding i think i have to look a certain way people have to um wear this or the dress or we have to eat this whatever um and this kind of just reminded me that this wedding is about more than just me it's about me sharing a really happy moment in my life with my friends family and co-workers um and just being reminded of that was super consoling on saturday oh. that's so exciting mm-hmm. also Aww. mom tears it's always yeah mom tears will do oh, it. i can't wait to see it <laughs> slash for the wedding <laughs> <laughs> ashley what do you got uh i have a desolation this week which it's gonna sound weird in the beginning because i had like a very very fun weekend there was there was dancing and feasting and drinking and a lot of good time spent with my friends um but then i like woke up on monday with like a kind of like existential hangover slash real <laughs> maybe a real hangover i don't know i had just worn myself out and i woke up feeling like kind of empty and i realized that like part of that was i I didn't go to mass and it wasn't it was not an intentional thing like I wanted to go to mass it was just like my Sunday just like the schedule happened and then it was 7 p.m. and I hadn't gone to mass and I realized that like you know it's not bad that I had like packed my weekend with a lot of like fun stuff and like enjoyed my time with my friends but um I think waking up on Monday and like feeling kind of like that feeling that lack was like a good corrective to like you know, it's okay to have fun, but, like, remember, remember to, like, make that time that you know you want um, for prayer, for Mass, um, and so, yeah. Feels like an appropriate thought to have right before Ash Wednesday, in fact. <laughs> yes, yes, so I am ready. <laughs> ready for some Lent. <laughs> yeah. What do you have? I have a consolation this week. Uh, so I am 26, uh, I just turned 26, and oh, yep, so old. and that means a couple <laughs> things mathematically. Uh, one that I've you're closer to 30 than 20. That's also true. <laughs> Mid 20s are upon me, uh, but also that I've been at my job for four years, and I'm sort of surpassing that. And the last time I did something for longer than four years was like before high school, right? And I'm also getting ready for marriage, and so it feels like I'm settling into a lot of things for the long haul 
And I was talking to Father Eric about this, um, and I was saying that I was feeling a little bit anxious about sort of my current life situation because there's this, uh, I guess my brain is used to being like, okay, you did, you put in four years, what's mm. next? It's time, mm. like there's this adrenaline rush that you need to look for the next big thing, um, whether, you know, move across the country, across the world or whatever. And I was speaking to that anxiety and uh, Eric kind of mentioned like, no, you're just 26. This is settling in, right? <laughs> like this is what it feels like to do that. And so I took that conversation and was praying with it a little bit and trying to recognize that this is in fact where God is calling me. But the the different thing this time was that, you know, four years ago when I was trying to make a big life choice, the, the voice that was saying, okay, go crazy, go do the next big step, that that was God's voice. And now the voice that's saying that in my head this time around is is not the voice of God. In mm-hmm. fact, the voice of God is saying the opposite of that. And it is true given the different context. And so the consolation was sort of sorting all of that out and feeling at peace where I am in my vocation in life right now. Yeah, you better not leave us, Zach. I'm being still for a little (laughs) bit. It's it's really nice. And if it helps, you sound way more grounded than I did at 26 when I had to deal with the anxieties of stepping into the second half of your 20s. Um, So hope that helps somehow. I think it's because I have good friends like you to guide me. You guys, they can't hear how much you're smiling (laughs) at me. We we both reacted to that yeah. very wonderful moment, um, but we were quiet. It's like, oh, Zach was met with radio silence. <laughs> tried to be nice. No. Uh, get us out of here, Ashley. All right. Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by me. Jesuit Formation by Eric Sunder SJ. Engineering by Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Yelpster Mike and John T. Sr. And you can send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week. <laughs>